The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we um, this is going to be a very interesting story today. It's actually a true story that my guest is going to tell. He is the author of a book about this um, story, and um, it's, it's what people can do. I mean, it's an amazing story. His book is called Angels in the Sky, and it's an amazing story of volunteers that changed the course of history. My guest is Robert Gant. He's a former U.S. Navy pilot, Navy fighter pilot. He's an airline captain. He has his own plane. He's an award-winning author of 16 books on military and aviation themes with over half a million books in print in 13 languages. He, um, he has written about the battle for Okinawa in a book called The Twilight Warriors, and that was the 2011 winner of the Morrison Prize for Naval Literature. He has screen credits. Uh, the CBS series Pensacola Wings of Gold was adapted from his naval aviation thriller called Bogies and Bandits. And he, his latest book is the one that I just mentioned, Angels in the Sky. And he lives in a flying community named uh, or near Daytona Beach. I was just asking him before we started, what is a flying community? And I'll let him tell. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's better than even, well, I mean, I love horses. And, I can, and, you know, having a horse in your backyard is sort of a dream. But um, having an, a plane in your backyard is <laughs> taking it to another level. So welcome to the show, Bob. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Carol. So tell us about, uh, tell us about your flying community, for starters. Well, first of all, it's called Spruce Creek Fly-In. It's, it's been here for you know, about 30 years. But it, it was formerly an old World War II Navy training base that uh, was later developed into this fly-in community. Now it's a, it's a big gated community with uh, about 1,800 homes on it. And uh, 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 most of the homes, or about half of them, have hangars attached so that we have our airplanes right outside our living rooms. And uh, the airplanes range from everything from little aerobatic airplanes like mine to helicopters to uh, big uh, Cessna corporate jets. Well, it's pretty amazing. Um, have you, how long have you lived there for? Oh, I've been here for coming up 20 years now. Mm. And so Since... do, you, uh, do you get it, hop into your plane and go to another state for dinner? <laughs> oh, we, actually, we do that. We go to breakfast for uh, 
every at least uh, once or twice a week, uh, usually a different place. And then there's a thing called a gaggle here, and, and as many as 30 or 40 airplanes all take off in different formations, and we go to places like uh, Jacksonville and Titusville and, and Orlando for just for breakfast, like seagulls. <laughs> well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, why don't we start with, before we get into your latest book, Angels in the Sky, let's start back with um, when you were a tiny tot and how you developed your love of flying. I mean, obviously, becoming a uh, Navy fighter pilot, you, your love of flying had to have started early. Well, I didn't have much choice. My, I, my father had a flying business, a flying school, and he was a crop duster. So I grew up with airplanes. I was flying oh, yeah. airplanes before I could drive a car. And uh, at the same time, even though he didn't favor it, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I've sort of done the two in parallel for my whole life. Huh. At the right. age of uh, at the age of sixteen, I I soloed an airplane legally for the first time, and almost to the day, I sold my first uh, article to a magazine. So huh. that pretty much uh, gave me a career path. Was that one of the things where your father was saying, "Oh, you know"? That's that stuff is silly, or uh, yeah, oh, you, know, yeah. you don't want to mess oh, yeah. around with that. Just be a pilot, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wanting to be a writer was uh, was kind of a far out ambition, uh, as far uh-huh. as he was concerned. Uh huh. Well, I'm that's now, now you've shown him, right? <laughs> um, well, all right. So, so, um, so, you, then, so then after you were in the navy. You were an airline captain for what airlines? Well, let me start with the Navy. I, I dropped out of college and joined the Navy just to be a pilot. And uh-huh. I, was, I was still at, at a fresh young age. I was a, briefly the youngest uh, officer and aviator in the Navy. I, I was only 20 when I got my wings. Hmm. And uh, I was too young to, to, to vote or drink, but I could fly nuclear weapons off of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> But I did that for about eight years, and then I joined uh, what was then the world's most glamorous airline, Pan American World Airways. Uh-huh. And I was with them for 26 years. We, I lived all over the world, 12 years in Berlin, several years in Hong Kong. Hmm. And uh, that's sort of when my book writing career took off. Uh, I had the advantage of some pretty exotic locales to write about. Uh-huh. Hmm. And, then, and and when in during that time did you get married? Uh, early in the game, I got married, and then uh, later in the game, I got married again. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I was going to say you needed to find a wife who was who liked all this, uh, you know, well, living in different cities. That's correct. And I finally found one. In fact, she <laughs> she's a very successful realtor right here in uh, Spruce Creek, Fyan, uh, uh-huh. the community. The community uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay, so so let's uh, let's go into the story of angels in the sky. Um, mm-hmm. ha- what made you particularly? I mean, you know, you've obviously written sixteen books um, about these kinds of topics. How did you pick right to write about angels in the sky? Well, it, it, at the time this came up, I was between projects. I turned down a couple after sixteen books. I, I I'd learned to sniff the ingredients of a good story. And mm-hmm. I turned down a couple of proposals from my agent and from my publisher, Random House. They just didn't cause me any passion. And then I met uh, Mike Flint, this young movie producer, who has been developing a film 
for some years about the exploits of the volunteers in the Israel, Israel's War of Independence. And one of the principals in that story was his father, Mitchell Flint, uh, then a 92-year-old ex-U.S. Navy fighter pilot. And as he was telling me about the actions of these volunteers in the war in Israel, describing what it was like to fly a Messerschmitt fighter or dive bombing with an old AT-6 trainer, it just came to me like a thunderbolt. This was a book I had to write. It was, I knew I was hearing the quintessential David versus Goliath tale uh-huh. with all the classic ingredients. You know, a seesaw battle for survival and a high-stakes plot with the mm-hmm. outcome in doubt until the very end. And especially an international cast of really colorful characters. I, uh-huh. I was hooked from the time I heard it. I, I took this idea to my, to my agent, and she loved it. And uh, we cranked up a proposal and, and, and took it out, and almost every publisher we approached wanted it. As it turned out, W.W. W. Norton became the, uh, the winner, and uh, the rest is history. The book just came out October 3rd in all the bookstores. Uh-huh. So, I mean, was this just a chance meeting with Mike Flint, or did he seek you out because he knew you were a writer of many books well, like that? Well, it was sort of a chance. It was a, a, through a mutual friend, a, a, a friend of mine named Ben Ominsky, who also knew Mike, who suspected we might have this in common. So mm. he looked us up together in a conference call. Mm. And, and like I said, the more I heard this story, the more I realized, yes, yes, this was, the, the, this was going to be my next book. I knew it. Okay. Mike and I, and Mike and I. In fact, Mike is my prime collaborator on the book, and uh, without him, I couldn't have done it. Probably, at least in the time frame we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd spent all these years uh, collecting, archiving all this material, including huh. hundreds of hours of videoed interviews of all these old veterans, uh, most of whom are deceased now. So that that became my prime source uh, for for the book. Well, was his father still alive when you got involved? Yes, he was, and I mean, uh, very much so. And, and uh, a wonderful gentleman. The, the book, by the way, is, is uh, dedicated to Metro Flint. Uh-huh. And is he still alive? No. Uh, quite ironically, he passed away the week before the book was published. But uh-huh. he, in fact, read the book and, and loved it. Ah, okay. That's good. And he knew yeah. it was going to be published, so that's good. Oh, oh yeah. He knew Okay, so why don't you start on the story? Well, the, the story begins in 1947, November 29, 1947. The United Nations declared the partition of the territory of Palestine into an Arab state and a Jewish state. And uh, for many years, Jews have been immigrating to Palestine with this biblical prophecy in their, in, in their minds that someday they would have their own nation there. So this news was received with joy, jubilation, all through the, the Jewish communities, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, in, uh, in Palestine. But the Arab communities totally rejected it, and a, a civil war immediately started. In, in, uh, and uh, the five surrounding Arab countries as well all vowed there would not be ever a Jewish uh, state in, in the territory of Palestine. And they were prepared to go to war for this. Well, the, the partition was supposed to take place uh, the coming spring, May of 1948. This white-haired dynamo, five-foot-tall, 60-year-old politician named David Ben-Gurion, mm-hmm. 
knew that they, they, they would have no hope of surviving against this Arab invasion without outside help. The help would have to come primarily from the United States and somewhat from, from other countries. And that became the, the, the beginning of the, what they call the Mahal, which is a, a, a Hebrew acronym for volunteers from overseas. And so the, uh, they had an underground army. But mind you, the, the territory was still occupied by Great Britain. It had been since World War I. And, and uh, Britain was, was not in favor of a Jewish state. Uh, Great Britain was closely allied with its former colonies, Egypt, mm. Transjordan mainly, and they much favored the existence of an Arab state over a, over a Jewish one. So mm. Great Britain was not only not a help, not an ally, but a great hindrance. Remember the exodus and all the stories of turning mm-hmm. back refugees? Well, they still maintained this blockade. So the uh, Ben-Gurion's underground army called Haganah had no chance of, of, of bringing in arms, uh, munitions, uh, new troops, and, and, and least of all, warplanes. So in the United States began this covert movement headed by a brilliant young 27-year-old flight engineer named Al Schwimmer to uh, literally smuggle and sometimes steal uh, mainly warplanes, surplus warplanes, and somehow get them to Israel in time to defend themselves. Hmm. And Schwimmer became brilliant at this, saying one, just one step ahead of the uh, FBI and the U.S. Customs Service. The U.S., mind you, was also uh, opposed, not opposed to Israeli statehood, but they would offer no assistance, and worse, they enforced an embargo of all arms uh, to any, any buyers, such as Al Schwimmer and, and agents of the Haganah. So all this had to be done clandestinely. Hmm. And who was the president at that time? The Harry Truman. And, and Truman had a problem because, he was a, one, he was a new president. He's also running for re-election in 1948. And his State Department was headed by the senior statesman in the United States, George Marshall. And the, the, besides the, the Neutrality Act that they, in, they insisted on enforcing, there was, in 1948, a strong undercurrent of anti-Semitism, particularly through the State Department. And so they offered no help. In fact, uh, tried to obstruct every way they could the, uh, the formation of the Israeli state. George Marshall himself predicted it would never last, that they could not possibly withstand an Arab invasion. The only, the only help, the only recognition Israel received was from Harry Truman, who wrote a note recognizing the uh, declaration of statehood when Israel became a state. Beyond that, nothing from the United States. Hmm. But mind you, the United States had the biggest stockpile of war surplus equipment, especially bombers and fighters. None of this was available to uh, Schwimmer and the Haganah agents. I say Haganah, this is the forerunner of the Israeli Defense Force. But somehow Schwimmer found a way. He was setting up bogus companies, buying these things from secondhand uh, uh, purveyors, and... Uh, then sneaking him out of the country before the uh, FBI figured out what was happening. <laughs> yeah, huh. it was marvelous cat and mouse games, and he was masterful at it. He, a lot of these guys had to pay dirty later on. They wound up being uh, indicted, uh, charged with violating the Neutrality Act, fine, given huge fines, stripped of all their veterans' benefits, 
and huh. one case uh, given a year and a half in jail. But uh, they, they succeeded. They, right off the bat, he managed to sneak out 10 C-46 transports, big World War II uh, transports, and and under the guise of a Panamanian flag airline. For a little while, Panama was rejoicing. They thought they were going to have their own airline. <laughs> but the uh, one night, the airplanes all disappeared, and they they reappeared at a little field in Czechoslovakia, which turned out to be the only country that would give Israel a base from which they could they could operate. Hmm. And that became the, the lifeline, flying these C-46s from Czechoslovakia, a 14-hour round trip to, uh, to Israel. And uh, usually at night, because they're in danger of being shot down by Arab airplanes. Czechoslovakia played a big role for a while. Schwimmer was unable to get fighters, although uh, he was busy recruiting fighter pilots like Mitchell Flint and uh, about 30 others who were stashed in a pool in, in Rome awaiting their orders, awaiting the airplane, the fighters that they didn't yet have. And with time running out, Ben-Gurion made a deal with Czechoslovakia to buy 25, uh, we call them Messerschmitt fighters, the Czech version of the Luftwaffe Messerschmitt. Imagine that. Jews flying Luftwaffe <laughs> Nazi fighters. Yeah, it was really running. And they were terrible airplanes because they, they weren't even, they were the Czech version with a, a lesser engine, an old transport engine with a big paddle-bladed propeller. It was a deadly airplane to fly. They wound up killing more pilots in accidents with that airplane than, than mm. in combat. But that's all they had. Ah, and that's all the time we have for this segment. <laughs> I don't know if you heard the music. We need to take a break. This is an incredibly interesting story, and I see it as being, uh, I, want to, I want the movie to come out tomorrow so I can see it. My guest is Robert Gant. He is the author of many books like this, and his latest one is that we're talking about is Angels in the Sky. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Robert Gant. He is a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot. We've heard basically uh, his, his destiny was set from the time that he was a tiny tot, and his father was, owned an airplane school, and he wanted to be a writer, and in the end, he uh, ultimately found a way to combine both loves. Uh, and we're talking about his new book, Angels in the Sky, which is an incredible story as he's describing it. You know, you describe this in a very, uh, in a very picturesque kind of way. I mean, I can picture all these things as you're talking about it, picture them going across the screen, as we, were all soon, as we all will soon will be doing <laughs> when this becomes moving. Um, so you, take us, um, start again from where you left off. Well, the, as the date of independence for Israel came up, which was scheduled to be the 15th of May, that's when the British would withdraw and Israel would be on its own. Uh, David Ben-Gurion jumped the gun a day early, thumped his gavel on the lectern, and declared the founding of the state of Israel. And once again, there was jubilation and dancing in the streets, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and all the kibbutzim around the country. This was the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise, the uh, greatest happiness they'd ever had in Palestine. And that lasted until dawn the next morning, when bombs started raining down on Tel Aviv from Egyptian bombers. At the same time, the armies of five Arab countries rolled across the border, invading the new country. And uh, from the south came two 10,000-man brigades of the Egyptian army, one right straight across the Negev Desert towards Jerusalem. The other aimed right up the coast like an arrow towards Tel Aviv. And uh, the, the Jordanians came in from the east, swept around Jerusalem. The Iraqi army came from the east, went, and they were headed right straight across the country to the coast where they were going to cut off Tel Aviv from Haifa. From the northeast came the Syrian army down through the Galilee, overrunning all the, the uh, Jewish kibbutzim. And from the, the, the north, the smallest army, the Lebanese army, five armies rolling into Israel. And at, at that time, they, the, the Haganah had almost nothing to stop them with. They, they had enough weapons for one out of every three soldiers. And it looked like the war would be over in a, in, in, within two weeks. And indeed, two weeks later, on the 29th of May, the evening of, uh, an urgent summons came from the village of Ishdud on the coast. They had blown a bridge uh, at the village, stopping the Egyptian army just long enough uh, to hold them up overnight. Twenty miles away was Tel Aviv. The next day, the war could be over. 
Hmm. The summons went out to the, the, the little Ekron Air Base where the first of the Messerschmitt fighters were still being put together. They hadn't been test flown. The guns hadn't been fired. The pilots hadn't been trained. Each one had about an hour in the Messerschmitt. There were only four airplanes. And uh, this was the Israeli Air Force. Four of these decrepit fighters and uh, the four pilots. And uh, here came the, the, the order, stop the Egyptian army. Huh. And they looked at each other and shrugged their shoulders. There's an expression they use in Hebrew called Ein Brera. It means, basically, no alternative. Mm-hmm. And that was it. They, they had no alternative. So they took off, and these four fighters, and they had no trouble finding the Egyptian army. It was only 10 miles away. Hmm. And, and they dropped these puny little bombs, 150-kilogram bombs, and swept around and strafed until their guns jammed, every one of them. The number four pilot, uh, South African named uh, Eddie Cohen, was shot down in flames and killed. Huh. The number two pilot crashed on landing back at Ekron. And the leader of the flight, his name was uh, Lou Lenart. Uh, World War II hero, Marine pilot, was was, was despondent. He, he thought they'd failed utterly. They they, they 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 had to they had to save Israel, and they had failed. Well, what he found out right after dark was it accomplished a miracle. They, get, they intercepted a radio message from the Egyptian general. They're in retreat. They've come under attack by a modern air force. <laughs> Huh. And that, that, that bridge now has a name. I, in fact, I went there with Mitchell Flint. It's called Ad Holom, which roughly means this far and no farther. It's huh. the farthest any, any, uh, any uh, enemy uh, army would ever come into Israel. Uh-huh. And, and so that little, little four-man flight, as, as futile as it seemed, literally saved Israel that evening. Well, now, but wait a second. But what about the other countries coming in from the other directions? Well, they, they weren't nearly as close as that Egyptian brigade had been. And they were all being stopped. And mind you, all the time, these C-46s are bringing in fresh troops, fresh guns, fresh ammunition. And little by little, they, 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 they brought the enemy to a halt. The very next day, I have to point out, they had two Messerschmitts left. So off they go, and they attacked the Iraqi army, which is on the march across the, towards, the, towards the sea, towards the Mediterranean. And the same thing happened, and they shot them up, panicked them, and the process, one of them gets shot down uh, and uh, nearly captured, but he uh, parachuted into the water and is, was rescued by, uh, was, was almost killed, actually, by, by some uh, Jewish farmers until they realized, because, mind you, nobody knew the Israelis had an air force. Uh-huh. Fighters. They, th- they thought they were capturing an Arab. And... Uh, but, uh, and he didn't speak any Hebrew, and he's yelling at them in Yiddish, and finally, uh, they, they resist sticking him with a pitchfork until they look at his ID and realize, he's an American, and he's one of them, and they have an Air Force. Huh. But in those two, just one miracle after another for several days, that the next evening, they had one remaining Messerschmitt, and flown by a young a heroic young Sabra named uh, Modi Alnon, he intercepts the uh, incoming Egyptian bombers, and right over downtown Tel Aviv, people are taking pictures of this. There's a photograph of it in my book. It looks like a swallow chasing a condor. Hmm. This little fighter swoops in on the tails of the bombers and shoots down one, and then the second one, blows them up in the sky, and then chases the uh, escort fighters away. 
And he instantly became the greatest national hero hmm. in, in Israel, Modi alone. He, 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 was the, he was the David who just took on Goliath. And uh, he was a perfect guy for the role. Handsome young man, never went anywhere without his sunglasses. <laughs> he looked like a movie star. Ben-Gurion instantly made him the uh, commander of the, they call it the 101 Fighter Squadron. Grand-sounding name. It's as if they had many fighter squadrons. In fact, they had four, <laughs> they had four airplanes and five pilots. So but, uh, the total of these angels in the sky, the total number, you know, of like the the planes that were smuggled to Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. and all that, the total was four. No, well, that, this is no, no. This is at that point they kept coming. Eventually, they would have twenty-five oh, of, these, uh-huh. of these these Messerschmitts, but they had to be they had to be disassembled and flown in pieces. Uh, only half of one in a C-46 and the, and the other, the wings in another one. And this took a period of time. And, but little by little, they, they build up their, uh, their air force. And, uh, mind you, there was, they, they held off the Arabs long enough until, uh, the Arabs wanted a truce. And this truce lasted while both sides re- rearmed themselves and then a war started mm-hmm. in, in greater intensity. But this gave, Israel breathing time. They got more airplanes in, more pilots, more uh, more bombs, and uh, they from from then on they were able to defend themselves. The, the Arabs actually captured no more ground in Israel, and uh, little by little, then the Israelis began to push back, but not until they were able to take command of the sky, and that took a while. So um, the reason why it took so long to get the airplanes there, you know, piece by piece and so on, was because they were being smuggled, because this was all, they had to yes. do all of this undercover. They couldn't just yeah. fly the plane to Czechoslovakia. No, all these fighters, later on they got Spitfires, but we'll come to that later. But the Messerschmitt only had a very short range, about 600 miles at the most. And mind you, Czechoslovakia was 1,500 miles away. Hmm. So they had... They had to be, and there's no way they could fly them across, so they had to be disassembled, put in the, in the transports, taken to a place called Ekron, it's the main air base in Israel, and then reassembled. I see. Yeah, and the pilots had to be trained, and, and, and when they started out, they only had five pilots, and then little by little, they, they, uh, they got reinforcements, and, and new volunteers showed up. And by the middle of the summer, they, they were a formidable fighting unit. But they were still learning as they went along. This, this was a hodgepodge, ragtag Air Force, and they had uh-huh. a, lot, a lot of things the hard way. And who were these ragtag um, pilots? I mean, in other words, how did, uh, how did they get convinced to join this? It, was, it seems almost like a suicide mission. Yeah, and, and in researching the story, I kept asking that same question. Is that, altogether, the Air Force was about 150 men. This bomber pilots, transport pilots, uh, navigators, all that. Well, only about 30 of them were fighter pilots. But I kept asking the same question. How did they get these guys? Almost all of them were World War II veterans who had survived the greatest of all wars, and they were back in, in, in peacetime on the GI Bill, going to school, starting careers, starting families. How did they get these guys to risk everything, their lives, their, their, their citizenships, in fact, their new careers? And there's a, a lot of mixed reasons. About two-thirds of them were Jewish. A third were not. Uh, 
some of the Jewish pilots had lost relatives in the Holocaust. And to them, this was a, was a righteous war, something that a noble cause they'd sign up for. And uh, because to, to lose that war in Israel was, would be another Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So, so that was some of their motivation. Uh, for the non-Jews, it was a little more complex. They were simply idealists. In the same sense, I think, that um, pilots volunteered to be flying tigers in the beginning of World War II, or the Lafayette Escadrille in World War I. It, it was an idealistic, adventurous, romantic thing for them to do. Uh-huh. And then, but in talking to these guys and, and listening to these recorded interviews, I sensed something else there, too. There, there was a chemistry. These guys were all in their 20s, most of them. And they were mostly all single. And uh, they were all pretty adventurous guys. For them, World War II had been the peak experience of their lives. The, the adrenaline rush of air-to-air combat was, was, a, 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 they, it was something they missed in the three years after World War II. Now, here was a noble cause for which they could, once again, get that adrenaline rush and fight a so-called, if there's such a thing, a good war. And, and that, that was their motivation for a lot of them. Uh-huh. So, uh, Haganah was pretty good at, at recruiting these guys. They would go through the rosters of uh, reserve squadrons and, 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 and veterans lists, picking out, especially picking out Jewish names. And then they'd get this knock on the door, these guys. Uh, you know, you're, you're re- people with talents like yours are really, really needed in this war. And if you don't volunteer... Uh, these people are going to be annihilated. And this had a great appeal to people. Uh, Mitchell Flint, to whom this book is dedicated, is, uh, was in his senior year at Berkeley, University of California, on the GI Bill. Brilliant career ahead of him. And he gets a knock on the door. And he's an idealist again, but a very logical young man. He, he, he goes home and he makes, a, on a yellow legal pad, he makes this list of go, no-go reasons why you should go, why you shouldn't go. And his biggest problem was his mother. Uh, she had worried about him for three and a half years in World War II, and he survived that. And he, he, he didn't dare tell her he's going off to another war. So mm-hmm. he, Mitchell did uh, what, he, what came natural to him. He, he lied to her. <laughs> and he told her he's going off to the 1948 Olympics in London. <laughs> and, and being a good Jewish mother, she believed him. <laughs> and so, so off he went to Israel. And this happened with a lot of guys. Rudy Algarden, brilliant young man in his third year at Harvard, international relations study. He'd been a World War II hero, shot down on his second mission in France and captured by the Germans. And he knew that with a name like his and his, and his looks, he wasn't going to do well in a Nazi prison camp. So uh, he escaped prison and hid out in the, in the woods in France for two weeks, made his way to Allied lines, got back to his squadron, flew 92 more missions, and shot down two German fighters. He was just the guy that the, the Haganah was looking for. And he, too, agonized over this. And sure enough, he dropped out of Harvard and went to Israel. And, and uh, I'll, I'll be a spoiler, he became the first ace of the Israeli Air Force. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting that these weren't just people sitting around, <laughs> you know, with nothing much to do. They're in Berkeley. They're in Harvard. Oh yeah. It, 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 
later on we'll talk about what happened to them after the war. But this was an unusual, unusually talented and, and diverse bunch of guys. They all had different, different motivations and different skills. But but each one of them was was highly talented and and uh, and, and perfectly suited for this 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 kind of a war. Well, this is, you know, I'm sure you did really deep character studies, and I'm sure that's, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. I think, like, for, particularly for women, although I know I'm generalizing, but um, for me, it's not so much the guns or the, or the war strategy or whatever, as it is the uh, personalities and the, uh, the characters, mm-hmm. you know, and this seems like a very rich group of characters. There were a rich group of characters, and, and the few that I could interview, the, the living ones, I... I think I was able to bond with them. I've, 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 I've done this before with World War II books I've, I've written uh, because I'm a fighter pilot, and pretty soon they realize that we speak a, a common language, and they start telling me things that they probably wouldn't have told or you know their, their family or a reporter, and, and 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 pretty soon I'm getting a sense of what they really felt and what they were afraid of and what what, what, mm-hmm. what cheered them up and 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 particularly the bond they felt with each other. Mind you, these guys came from all over the world, U.S., Britain, South Africa, Canada particularly, and Jews and non-Jews. And by the end of the war, these guys had bonded like brothers. Uh, they were probably more loyal to each other than they were to their own countries or to Israel. Uh-huh. And they kept that bond for the rest of their lives. It, that's another impressive thing about them. Hmm. Well, we do need to take another break. This is a great story. My guest is Robert Gant. His book is called Angels in the Sky, um, the, essentially the first Israeli Air Force that came, uh, came together in, in amazing, miraculous circumstances and saved the state of Israel. So we'll be back to this story when, when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise 
surprise you. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. With my guest, Robert Gant, he is, uh, has a long history in flying, from, starting from when he was a U.S. Navy fighter pilot, and, um, and also a, an author, an award-winning author of 16 books on military and aviation themes. And uh, this, his latest book is uh, just is captivating. In my, I mean, I'm captivated. I'm sure you all who are listening are captivated, too, to this story. Uh, this great David versus Goliath story, and, and just so improbable that all the, this ragtag um, Air Force coming together with with borrowed, big borrowed and stolen airplanes, and and then have, that have to be put back together, <laughs> and pilots who never really were trained long enough in these airplanes, and so on, and yet and yet they managed to uh, to win the war, which we'll hear more about right now. So, Robert. Well, I think where we left off, the, the, the Messerschmitts, by the way, were uh, doing a good job of taking on the uh, Arab Air Forces, uh, particularly this fellow I mentioned, Rudy Algarten, uh, became the first ace, but he became an ace in four different airplanes, uh, you, you, uh, counting the two he shot down in World War II, and then he shot down two with a Messerschmitt, and then uh, in the autumn of 1948, uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, announced they wouldn't sell any more Messerschmitts, which the pilots weren't too disappointed about. But then they turned around and said, but we do have these Spitfire fighters available. And uh, thus came a big change in the air war. They had, it, was, it was problematic getting them from Czechoslovakia. They had to ferry them, and they had to be replumbed with fuel systems to do that. But, but the Spitfires began arriving in the autumn of 48, and uh, from then on, the air war changed totally in favor of the of the Israelis. Now, mind you, the Messerschmitt was a deadly fighter. Uh, it, it wasn't a match for the uh, Egyptian, mainly the Egyptian Air Force, which had modern Spitfires, but the pilots made all the difference. They, uh-huh. they, they far outclassed the, uh, the uh, Arab fighter pilots, but uh, they lost a lot of Messerschmitts, including one, a bunch of them flipped upside down on takeoff and or on landing mm. and trapping the pilot beneath uh, two of the pilots disappeared and later determined they probably shot off their own propellers because the, the synchronizing mechanism on the machine guns supposed to fire the bullets between propeller blades was malfunctioned or was sabotaged. They never found huh. it. Two of the pilots just disappeared or killed. Uh, the, the great hero, the David who slew Goliath, Modi alone, coming back from a mission and about to land at Herzliya Air Base in his without talking on the radio, his, his, his aircraft began smoking, pitched down, and plunged into the ground, 
just short of the runway, and he was killed instantly. Uh, hmm. his, his loss was mourned by, not only by the squadron, but all through Israel. Huh. So nobody, nobody loved it. They, they had a lot of really nasty names for the Messer Schmidt, but, uh, as you can imagine. But then came the Spitfire, and that made all the difference. And they, they totally swept the, the sky clear of enemy, enemy fighters. Now, at the same time, because they had air superiority, the Egyptian or the uh, Israeli army was pushing, pushing and the, the Egyptians back until they're finally, uh, uh, they got one brigade entirely surrounded, the place called Fallujah, and the rest of the army is down in the Gaza and about to be annihilated by the uh, Israeli forces. And... Uh, Egypt suddenly, suddenly is suing for, for peace. They'd like to have an armistice. Well, the, the, an armistice was agreed to on the 7th of January, on the afternoon of. Well, that day, the uh, a sandstorm is blowing, uh, an Israeli column is, mo- is moving right up the border of Egypt and Israel when they're attacked by four Egyptian fighters. And uh, as soon as those, they, they blew up some trucks and... and, and, and kill some Israeli soldiers, and as they withdraw, four more fighters, Spitfire fighters from the south, presumably Egyptian, sweep down over the, over the uh, column, and, and as this is all happening, here come two more Spitfires from the north. These are Israeli Spitfires, and they're flown by two volunteers, as, as it turns out, probably the deadliest fighter pilots in the world, a Canadian named John McElroy, an American, famous test pilot named Slick Goodland. They sweep down in a matter of two or three minutes, shoot down all these Spitfires. Huh. But in the but in the in the dogfight, Slick Goodlin is going back and forth with this, and he can't help noticing that these guys are a lot better pilots than the average Egyptians. What's going on here? And then he uh-huh. notices this in passing the emblem on the side of one of them. It's not the Egyptian Air Force; it's the British Royal Air Force. Oh wow! What? Yeah, those well, Goodlin can't get out of this fight. You know. This is not a fight he wanted, but he shoots the guy down, and they go back and land and report what happened. Well, what they didn't know, nobody knew yet, was the British had been escorting the Egyptians all along up to the border and then making reconnaissance passes. So the, 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 the uh, British were not only uh, obstructing Israel's progress in the war, they were actually helping the enemy. Anyway... Anyway, they think, now what's going to happen? The British aren't just going to lose four fighters and forget about it. So, so uh, another Sabra named Azer Weitzman takes off with the four Spitfires that afternoon, and he sees exactly what he expects to see coming up from the south, an armada of Royal Air Force fighters, Spitfires and Tempest fighters. And he swallows hard. In Brera, no alternative. They sweep down there, and there's this, this, this chaotic furious furball of a, of, a, of a fight, people shouting on the radio and airplanes exploding and machine guns rattling, and when it's all over, the British airplanes have all gone, uh, two of them have been shot down, and the Israeli planes are still flying, and they go back and land and report what happened, and now what's going to happen? The war with the, Egypt, with the Arabs is over, and perhaps a new one has begun with Britain. Huh. Well, overnight, all these messages fly back and forth, and the, the uh, British wisely decide not to pursue it any further. They could have wiped out all of the Israeli airfields if they wanted. And so, effectively, the war was over. They had won. 
the, the, the this little ragtag volunteer Air Force had, in fact, prevailed over the mightiest Air Force, second mightiest Air Force in the world, the wow. Royal Air Force. So is this this war was from May then um, May of forty seven, May of forty eight or forty eight to yeah. January and of forty nine or was it longer the, than that? Well, the last day of combat was January seventh of forty seven. Okay, so forty nine. But there was some there was some more, some actions. The Israeli forces still had to claim the rest of the uh, of the Negev Desert, which had been allotted to them, and they did that without any bloodshed, without firing a shot, and so. There was no more combat acti- activity after that. All, well, four of the five Arab countries all signed a separate peace, uh, peace arms, uh, agreement with Israel, starting with Egypt. And uh, with that and in hand, the, 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 the entrapped Egyptian brigades were allowed to retreat back to Egypt. And what was the, um, why, did the why did the British um, Air Force, what, what was it in it for them? I mean, they already... Well, again, the British had this alliance with Egypt and Transjordan all along. In fact, they had British officers commanding some of the Jordanian army. Mm-hmm. This goes back to World War I. The Egyptians and the Jordanians were clients. They're former colonies, but they were allies of the British, and the British stuck with them. There was also... A uh, and so did the U.S. The, 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 there was a suspicion that if Israel became a country, this, the Cold War is going on, the confrontation between the West and the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and the suspicion was that Israel, if it became a country, would fall into the Soviet bloc, hmm. and the Arabs would be allies to the Westerns. Well, it, as it turned out, that wasn't at all the case. But uh, that was part of the motivation of the British then. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, boy, you know, it's so interesting. I, I, I mean, of course, it's so interesting that this fight has continues today. Um, I oh, mean, yeah. none of this has been settled by any treaties or wars since then. Yep. Um, and I think no one expected Israel, starting with those kinds of, uh, with that kind of a beginning, to become the powerful, uh, successful, plentiful country that it is today, even though it's still, still very small. Yeah, and it's still threatened. Mm-hmm. Now let me say, let me say what happened to the to the volunteers because yes. with the war over, the Israelis uh, declared, "Okay, uh, thank you for your service. You can go home now. This will now be in a, a Hebrew-speaking all-Israeli air force and army." And it pretty much was. Some of them stayed there and became El Al captains, and some of them fell in love with with Israeli girls, obviously, and and found reasons to stay there. But most of them went home. They became all kinds of things. Mitchell Flint became a very successful attorney in Los Angeles. Uh, Lou Lennart and one other guy became movie producers. Uh, several of them became writers. Uh, one became a successful bank robber. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, really. Chris McGee. They had a big party for him when he got out of jail. But they, they remained bonded as brothers. They, 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 they continued to... to, to uh, meet each other you know, at least annually. They went to bar mitzvahs and weddings and increasingly to, to funerals. And it took about 50 years and for Israel to come around to realizing that these guys literally helped save their country. Yeah. And so now they're recognized as great heroes in Israel. Angels in the Sky, they're called, which uh, is the title of my book. And I think anybody who reads, for anybody who reads the book, I, I promise them 
they're going to be your heroes too. Yes, it. Uh, yes, <laughs> Israel did certainly owe that to them to come around finally and uh, and recognize them. Yep. Um, well, where would you? We're coming to the end of the show, so where would you like people to go to get the book? Well, the biggest bookseller in the world is Amazon. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's it was. It, it was a bestseller on Amazon when it came out. But every bookstore has them, especially Barnes & Noble. It's, uh, it's available in hardcover and ebook, Kindle book, and audio book. And another month or so, it'll be, uh, there'll be a softcover edition of it. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds wonderful. And what personally gives you the most pleasure in, in seeing the success of this and in, in, in having people read this story? Well, on Amazon, you can see the reviews and, and, and all the, uh, the, the, the uh, published reviews, uh, starting with Air and Space Magazine and all that, they, they all say pretty much the same thing, that this was, why hasn't somebody told this story before? Uh-huh. It's one of the, one of the, the great stirring uh, war stories of the 20th century, and, and that, I think, is what gives me the greatest pleasure, is, is making this story known and having it told pretty much in the voices of the guys who fought mm-hmm. this war. These, these, these were real heroes. They were, they were eccentric, gallant, uh, uh, courageous beyond measure, and, and they finally, I think, have gotten recognition for what they really achieved. That's what gives me the most pleasure. Yes, yes. Well, um, well I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing the highlights of the story with us, um, you know, obviously, it's. Uh, it, I mean, it certainly made me want to read the whole thing, so I'm sure it did to my listeners as well. And I wish you all kinds of success with it. Again, my the author, my guest, Robert Gant, is the author of the book called Angels in the Sky. This is like a. It almost seems like a you know like a pirate story, or something you know, <laughs> with with the gallantry as you say and and the courage and so on. Um, so I am, I am really happy that you brought this story to life, and especially, as you said, with the voices of the people who were, who were the pilots. That, that part is really amazing. I mean, you know, it's not just you reading about it <laughs> Some, in records. It's actually getting these interviews from the people who were doing it. So thank you so much, Robert Gant. Uh, again, the book is Angels in the Sky. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 